This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Five years ago, ISIS released a video showing the beheading of 21 Coptic Christians on a beach in Tripoli in Libya. Their executor stood in black behind the men who wore orange jumpsuits, and they were kneeling. The images of this massacre reverberated around the world. One evangelical church located downtown on one of Cairo's busiest streets hung a poster. We learned from what the Messiah has said. It read, over the background of an Egyptian flag, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Within 36 hours, the Bible Society of Egypt created a tract that became the organization's largest campaign ever, and more than 1.5 million of them were released. Last year, a German writer published a book called The 21, A Journey into the Land of the Coptic Martyrs, which examined the lives and faith of the migrant workers who became these martyrs. So we have done an episode exploring the Coptic church in Egypt previously. You can hear our conversation with Christianity Today's Middle East correspondent Jason Casper in episode 38. This week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss the Coptic church outside of Egypt. What led these men to leave their country? Why do they face persecution? And as more people practice outside of Egypt, what does it mean for the future of the Coptic church? Today is Wednesday, February 19th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. My name is Daniel Harrell. I am the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. So, Daniel, I wanted to do a gut check today, and I specifically want to take us back to this moment five years ago when this video came out and hear kind of the reaction that you had to see. Well, of course, that was in the midst of the ISIS terror that was making its way across the, the Middle East, and to, to see this happen in such graphic detail uh, on that beach in Libya was, on the one hand, uh, horrific, but on the other hand, unbelievably courageous and inspirational to those of us who follow Christ and realize that as martyrs, as witnesses, we would never seek to die, but to follow Christ uh, sometimes takes us to those places we would never imagine or dream we could ever go. And so to see that that uh, courage on on the part of those, those 21 people, um, just it blew us away. Yeah, I I think it's important when you were talking about the context of it being ISIS's kind of rampage of terror that they were going on. One of the things about ISIS is they truly captured how to create these images that were just going to go viral in their horror. And I think they were extremely effective at creating these videos that felt intimidating and scary and really dark to see. And then they would be everywhere on the internet within a couple of hours. And seeing kind of like the real-time awful ways that people were dying was pretty chilling. 
this particular thing too, I think it just stood out for the, the imagery that comes from it is, it's very evocative and um, kind of seems larger than life, which is I think kind of what ISIS was going for, but also why I think that this image became more than just 21 Christians die. I mean, I say that with all blase-ness, but I mean like, or I say this trying not to be blase rather, but for instance, there was a, a church attack in Burkina Faso a couple of days ago, right? 25 people died. Not all of them were Christians. There were some Muslims there, but the pastor was among them. And that's a extreme act of cruelty and violence. And yet I don't think we'll be talking about that five years from now. And so there was something about this particular image that, that made it stand out from other acts of violence that we see. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And and the fact that all of these these uh, this terror is is religiously motivated, um, mm-hmm. of course, is is incredibly disturbing as well. And it's it seems that certainly in the case of ISIS, it was in a way done for that effect mm-hmm. in order to you know communicate um, a kind of 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 terror that again uh, is only the thing of, of nightmares. And so glad that that much of that is is not. Um, in the news as it was, but at the same time we recognize with, with the deaths in Burkina Faso that this this tension and violence is, is ever with us. All right. So who is going to be joining us today to kind of get into a larger discussion about this? Yeah, we are so delighted to welcome Archbishop Angelos um, with us this morning. He was born in Egypt, immigrated to Australia in his early childhood with his family, and as an adult was consecrated a monk by the late Pope uh, Shinoda III, and has served as served as uh, Pope Shinoda's private secretary until 1995, when he was delegated to serve in the United Kingdom. Um, Archbishop Angelos is the first Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London, having served as General Bishop of the Coptic Orthodox Church in the United Kingdom since 1999. Archbishop Angelos, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, for many of our listeners, um, while we uh, remember this horrific event and perhaps have heard a little bit of the Coptic uh, Church and its uh, association with Egypt and uh, the fact that it is one of the earliest uh, expressions of Christianity in the world, probably still don't know um, a whole lot uh, more. And I wonder if you could uh, begin today by just telling us some of the distinctives of Coptic Christianity. So... The word Coptic just means Egyptian. Uh, Your your listeners will be more uh, familiar with churches like the Russian Orthodox Church or Greek Orthodox Church. The Coptic Orthodox Church is the Egyptian Orthodox Church. Uh, And that's why we always use the term Orthodox as well within the title. It was established, um, Christianity was established in the first century by St. Mark the Evangelist, the writer of the second gospel. And there has been an unbroken presence of Christian life and witness in Egypt since then. Currently, the church represents about 15% of the population of Egypt, which is about 15 million. Tragically, although it's 15% of the the population of Egypt, it now represents about 80% of all Christians in the Middle East, because there's been such a... Uh, an exodus of Christians from other states across the Middle East. The Coptic Orthodox Church is a is a scriptural church using Old and New Testament. It is a sacramental church. We have liturgies, we have 
sacraments. It's a very traditional church, uh, relying on the writings of the fathers. Um, it really is much more familiar than I think many people would account for if they're following in the mainstream traditional churches. Thanks for that overview there. I, I'm curious if you can take us back to five years ago this month about how you ended up hearing about this story of these 21 Coptic Christians. I remember the day very, very vividly. Uh, it was a Sunday. It was the 15th of February. I had had um, a liturgy in the morning and had various services and was on a pastoral visit in London. During the course of the day, we were getting information from various sources. The foreign ministry in Egypt had issued something about these men having been killed, and then they took it back. And there was a bit of toing and froing, and I was calling our office in Cairo trying to get the full picture. And then that evening, I received a call from a news uh, network that said, uh, well, you know, these 21, they're killed. And I said, no, no, we've been hearing all that. Nothing's confirmed. They said, no, we have the video. Mm. It's now confirmed. I remember, and they asked me to come in for an interview, and I remember um, leaving immediately and going for that interview. Um, as I was going there, I, I felt there was so much tension around the issue. People wanted to know, so I pulled my car over and, and wrote a very simple tweet saying that there was uh, a video released of the um, execution of... Uh, 21 Christians in Libya um, were praying for their families and, and I put a hashtag at the end Father Forgive went and did this interview and then was invited to another interview and for some reason people actually uh, held on to the forgiveness point of here is a bishop of the Coptic Orthodox Church uh, 20 of whose brothers had died and you know their friend a Ghanaian and yet he's speaking about forgiveness in the 24 hours that were to follow I think I did about 35 interviews back to back between wow. television radio press and a lot of it focused on the forgiveness point and I just think that 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 was a way of expressing our spirituality and our theology we're a church that it's very rooted in its martyrdom. You know, we start our Coptic calendar in 284 AD, which was the reign of Diocletian, under whom we suffered the worst wave of martyrdom in Egypt. And so it's not something that's new to us, um, but this was a very visible contemporary manifestation um, before the eyes of the whole world. Were, were the... Um the congregations, as they would, would hear this reminder of our call to, to forgive and love our enemies, was there a sense of um, unity that came around that, or did the, the, the congregations themselves resist to some extent, given just the horror that, that was committed? No, actually, I think there was. I think that set the pace. I think that was the first thing released by the church about what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely think it set the pace for everybody else and everything else. And because it was accepted so overwhelmingly, 
it reminded people that that is how we should be acting. It's very instinctive. For, for us as Coptic Christians, we've lived persecution over centuries. Uh, but the interesting thing is we live it with a sense of resilience, but we have never fallen into a state of victimhood or triumphalism. But we realize that it is the cross of Christ. We are carrying it. It's not the end of the road because there is a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is in that hope that we continue to live. And it's in that hope that we continue to carry that cross knowing that it will be removed from us. I think what's so powerful about that is it's easy for those of us who don't face uh, persecution in the same way to to hold to that same theology, but not have it tested. But what I what I love about what you're sharing is is how that power becomes even more powerful when it's actually when it's actually tested and proven true. It is because the Christian message is a powerful one. You know, the world tells us now that it's weak. That it's um, it, it's it's almost um, its time has passed. It it has no place in the world. But in actual fact, uh, whether it's in um, Egypt or Sri Lanka or Kenya or Nigeria, in every place where we've seen Christian persecution and martyrdom, it has been a real testimony of power, and that is what we can give to the world that. Even with that backdrop, we do not, cannot, and will not hate. Our hearts cannot be changed by by what we're experiencing. As we've been mentioning in the past couple minutes, this is a community that has endured violent persecution for years. And you had mentioned, Archbishop, that after this happened, <laughs> you did 35 different interviews in about 24 hours. So obviously, outside the church, this act of persecution was treated a little bit differently. What about inside the church? It, it, really, affected, it really affected everybody. Uh, one of the things which was of greatest effect wasn't just what those men did. It's what their families did. Because people who would speak to the families would hear the families who had not only heard of their sons, brothers, uncles, fathers being killed, they had actually seen them with their persecutors dehumanizing them, humiliating them in that way, or at least that's how they saw it in their eyes. And yet they spoke of it with such strength and such honor, and also such forgiveness. And, you know, when, when we have their immediate families reacting that way, then it sets the mood for absolutely everybody else. And it allows everyone to share in the power and the liberation of that forgiveness. Wow. How about um, for those families today, five years later, or where are they now? They're still the same. You made mention earlier of the book written by Martin Mosebach. Uh, Martin is 
uh, a traditional German Catholic who had seen the picture of the martyrs on a Catholic magazine. He was so moved that he went to Egypt and lived amongst their families. And he himself said that when he went into their homes, he expected to see grieving, mourning families. But actually, he saw families that were proud, um, who almost had shrines to their loved ones, and who were loving and forgiving and resilient. And that's what he depicted in his book. And that's what we've seen depicted throughout every time their stories mentioned. You know, you made mention earlier about this video that was supposed to intimidate. In actual fact, I think out of all the ISIS videos, and I haven't seen very many, but that was their most effective one because they really went completely above and beyond to produce it in such a way that it highlighted the event. But in actual fact, it backfired mm. because it showed the power of these men kneeling. And I remember a reflection I had in literally the week after when I was in the US and saying, asking, where was the power? Was the power in these you know, young men who were kneeling down so honorably and so peacefully and, and with such resilience and grace or in the big men with big swords who had to cover their faces to remain anonymous. And so it really changed the understanding of power dynamic. Mm. Uh, and it, it showed that at that moment of supposed weakness and brokenness, the prayer that they offered made them infinitely more powerful. Was there a particular story of one of the men that resonated with you? I suppose the one that still sticks in my mind very much is Matthew, who is their Ghanaian friend. They, they were 20 Coptic Christians and uh, a young man called Matthew, who we have two accounts. One is that he was already Christian and one that he came to faith as he lived with them. But regardless, he died with them. Um, in the, in the, the shrine that has been set up in a church dedicated to them, they have... Uh, artifacts of theirs on display and there is one empty space for for Matthew because um, Matthew uh, apparently didn't have any family or anyone who claimed mm. him mm. and so we are actually working here with the Ghanaian High Commission to see if he can be repatriated to Egypt to be with his brothers as I said the 21 were laborers. They they were there. They were working to support very poor families and very poor villages. They didn't go as missionaries. They didn't go as ministers or pastors. They they didn't expect to be witnessing in any way. And yet they were they they were captured. They were held for a long period of time by the caliphate. Um, that tried to break them and made, tried to make them convert, and, and that wasn't possible. But he was of, very much of one mind with them all. It, it looked almost like it was rehearsed. There was such um, a uniformity about all of them. And just in their glances to each other, you could see that they were ministering to each other as well. You know, I, um, when, I, when I saw that video, and there was the big burly man in the middle with his big knife 
pointing it at the camera and calling us uh, the nation of the cross as, as co- the Copts and that we were the favorite prey. Just to give you some back, backdrop, in Egypt, it's, it's a tradition to have usually a cross tattooed on the inside of your wrist. It's just something that uh, some, go, some say go back to the days of persecution when people were marked for their faith. But now it's been an act of, of witness and worship. Um, I didn't have one because I grew up in Australia. But I thought if these men could actually do what they did, then I, I also want to pay my own homage to that. And, and through the inspiration, I actually had one of those small tattoos done. And I've told that story in so many places, and I've gone back in a year's time, and I've had evangelicals and Catholics and you know non-Orthodox saying I was so inspired, I went and did the same thing. So yes, five years later, and these men are still inspiring generations. Um, our church has, the Coptic Orthodox Church has set aside the 15th of February as the commemoration of the contemporary martyrs of our church because since then um, as you might know we've had bombings in churches and shootings we've had people who have been targeted as they're going on pilgrimages to monasteries and it's not going to end because we know that that's the cross we carry but that day marked by those men in Libya has become a day that the whole church commemorates all our contemporary martyrs who have lost their lives and who, unfortunately, will continue to lose their lives. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Baylor University's Truett Seminary, where kingdom-minded women and men are equipped to follow their callings. I spoke with Matt Hameyer about how Truett Seminary seeks to support its students, even when they're off campus. Seminaries are are equipped and well-equipped to train ministers. I mean, that's what we do well. There's just no reason in our world today that should stop at graduation. Most of what I do, I would say, boils down to supporting, equipping, encouraging pastors and their churches, whether that is churches in transition, pastors in transition. Um, Again, what we're doing right now is leadership huddles for um, students serving in ministry for ministers in their first five years post-seminary. And then we'll plan events um, that help our pastors face some of the big challenges of the day that ministry presents. By learning to think theologically, developing ministry skills, cultivating a community of support, and engaging in spiritual formation, Truist students are uniquely prepared to make an impact in the church and the world. Learn more at baylor.edu slash Truitt. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. 
And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I think I even remember seeing an icon has been produced honoring them. Yes, that was an, that was it was the first actually. It was a young man in the United States who uh, produced this icon electronically. Hmm. And it became, in, in every sense of the word, quite iconic. I remember that was on the Sunday. I was in Washington with a pre-planned trip on the following Thursday. And I remember walking into Frank Wolf's office before he had retired and seeing that icon already up on his wall permanently. And it wasn't just because I was visiting um, I've attended so many things since then, conferences, uh, symposia, gatherings about martyrdom, and that icon and their photograph will be used as the backdrop because it almost has become the contemporary mark of what it is to be a, a contemporary martyr. We uh, we actually displayed it in, in my church as we were praying for the Coptic Orthodox Church and um, using some of your prayers in our own uh, Protestant liturgy just to identify with that. Because as most of our listeners know, the word martyr is just Greek for the word witness, and it is just uh, what it means to follow your faith to its fulfillment. Absolutely, and and, and our faith is is costly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's something that it is precious, it is life-giving, it brings us hope and promise, but it's costly because it is countercultural, it is counterintuitive, it goes against the very grain of many things that we see in today's society and today's world. And yet, it also um, has that reminder. And you know, this one act really brought the church together, as, as you rightly said, you used it in your service, which is a wonderful thing. But I remember almost immediately uh, a website being set up by a, 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 a collection of evangelical churches in the United States, just for the Libya martyrs. Uh, we've had numerous ec- ecumenical services. Um, we've had gatherings. We, we have... Um, had um, a visit by our Pope, Pope Teodros, to Pope Francis, where that became the initial talking point. And it's at, you know, during that visit, and I was with His Holiness in the Vatican, that Pope Francis first used the expression ecumenism of blood, ecumenism um, that came through martyrdom, because that is the one thing as Christians that we all share since the day, since the days of, of St. Stephen and um, moving through our collective history. So at the same time, while uh, persecution and 
in martyrdom is a reality of our our faith. It's not something that we are called to seek, and so we understand that uh, in these days, uh, Coptic Orthodox Christians are are leaving Egypt. Some have left, of course. Reports say that it, it might be in the order of two or three hundred thousand over the past probably eight or nine years. But when you're speaking about 15 million, that's a very small proportion. Mm. Uh, a lot of the people who left were have left because they wanted to establish life for them, for their children abroad. We have a very active church in lands of immigration. Uh, our biggest presence would be in North America, between the United States primarily, but also Canada. And then Australia and throughout Europe, throughout the Gulf. Uh, but we haven't had the mass exodus that we've seen from other places. For instance, if you look at um, Iraq, Christians there are now about 10% of what they were six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and Libya, they're almost non existent. I think Syria, about half the popula- Christian population have left. Uh, As I said, Christians in the Middle East represent 80%. So if you imagine those 20% are spread across the rest of the region. Um, Christians in Egypt don't necessarily want to leave because they have such a connection with their their churches, their heritage. It's a big gathering. It's It's a living church. It's thriving. It continues to witness. It has a strong a monastic movement. It has a strong scriptural foundation. And Christians in Egypt see themselves as indigenous people of Egypt. They were there from, as I said, the middle of the first century with the preaching of St. Mark. And we have continued to live and witness there since. So we don't necessarily want to leave. And even if some people do leave, the mass bulk that is there is not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. And, and the government in, in Egypt offers protections, correct? The government is doing what it can. I, you know, we're not looking for protection. We're looking for equal citizenship. We don't want to be protected. Um, we don't want to be treated differently to anyone else. I think there has been a very clear Islamization of Egypt over the past um, probably 70 years. You know, people blame the Mubarak era or the current era. This all started in the mid-50s with the first revolution. And there was a move from a very secular, religious-led, yet culturally secular Egypt to a very uh, Islamized Egypt. And which has actually affected Muslims even more than Christians, because um, we have records of Christians and Muslims living very well together before that stage. But there almost seemed to be a new way of living um, a different kind of Islam that became a, a much tighter mold. And if you didn't fit in that mold, then you you stood against the wave. Um, the government at the moment is trying to rectify some of that. You know, with the first uprising that happened in 2011 and the subsequent coming in 
of uh, a Muslim Brotherhood-sponsored president, a lot of damage was done, although they were only in power for about 10 months. A lot of damage was done during that time, and it's taking years to fix. But um, thank God things are getting better in some sectors. In others, there is still a lot of work to do. But we remain hopeful that if we stay faithful, then things will change around us. I'm curious when we have Coptic Christians who end up moving overseas and having children overseas, to what extent has the Coptic Church been successful in helping these communities stay plugged into their faith? Or to what extent have they kind of had some of the same difficulties that many immigrant communities have of keeping children connected to that religion and culture? We're not by any means void of the challenges that are that are faced by all communities. Uh, I think we have two very important things that have helped us. The first is that we, for the past hundred years, have had a very strong um, Sunday school movement. And that has contributed significantly to how our children and young people uh, are, are served by the church. And out of the Sunday school movement, we then also have a very strong youth ministry. So we keep young people engaged. So that continues to be the case and mm -hmm. I think is incredibly effective and powerful. Of course, you know, it's not a 100% success rate. We have failures like everybody else. We have challenges like everybody else. We need to continue to be relevant like everyone else. But I think that works to our favor. The second is because of the persecution we've lived, um, our culture is very transferable. And so when we're here in England, we do a lot of what we do in English. We're not bound by a culture. We don't have a sacredness of language. So we can quite easily pray everything we pray, do everything we do in English. I, I personally lead a monthly all English Coptic liturgy in the center of London that is, is filled by Copts and non-Copts alike. Um, in our services, we will have English liturgies. Um, our retreats, our conferences, our uh, spiritual days are all done in English. And so that, again, helps us to be relevant and to remain engaging and engaged with our young people. I'm curious as well about just how the Coptic Church's leadership structure looks like and how becoming a church that is now based around the world, how that has kind of changed that leadership structure. Uh, I mean, it hasn't at all. Um, we have a hierarchical structure. We have um, the Pope of Alexandria and Patriarch of Sif St. Mark as the head of our church. Um, we are a synodical, a synodical church, uh, unlike, let's say, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, where the Pope is the head of the church and everything revolves around the Pope. As an Orthodox Church, we are synodical, which means this, the Holy Synod, which is the council of all bishops, and there are about 130 of us around the world now. So that is the council that 
um, determines teaching, doctrine, theology, sacrament in the church. Uh, but then each diocese, so each geographical area, is um, entrusted to a bishop. And the bishop becomes the ultimate authority in that diocese in terms of teaching and doctrine. So because we as bishops take our authority from the synod and then are serving our diocese. With the bishop then, there are priests, there are deacons, there are lay servants, men and women. Um, there, are the, there is a, a large and, and very active community. So even with countries, outside, uh, dioceses now outside of Egypt, that structure hasn't changed. The thing that has changed, which is interesting, it, sorry, the thing that has changed, which is interesting, is that while the proportion of Coptic Christians outside of Egypt is 10%, they are served by about 30, uh, 35 now bishops, which represents about 25% of the synod. So, so there is a focus on those communities outside, and that's just because uh, we are more spread out, we are more sparsely uh, distributed in certain areas, and so we need more pastoral care and oversight and ministry. That's why there is still a, a great focus on the church, both in Egypt and outside Egypt, in parallel. What lessons would you say have been most important for you in this this season as, as the church is? I mean, you've said certainly the church has endured persecution, obviously, for centuries, but in this time of sort of intense uh, focus on all this happening and uh, amongst Middle Eastern Christians. What lessons are you carrying away that would be helpful for the, the rest of us as we seek to live out our faith uh, honestly and fully? Well, the lesson I know as a Christian is that no matter how long or how dark or how cold or how oppressive the night is, it's always followed by a dawn there's always the other side of the transgression. There's always the other side of the, the, the peril. And we are in, in the hands of a mighty God who not only created us, but loves us uh, even unto death and gives us resurrection. I, I say sometimes to people that you know, if we're talking about persecution in the contemporary setting, um, our church has outlived Diocletian. Christianity has outlived empires and nations and rulers and authorities. And yet we're still here with the message of our Lord Jesus Christ and his life-giving resurrection. And I don't mean that in a triumphalist way, because there's nothing worse than an arrogant and smug Christian. And that, that, it's, not, it's not becoming uh, it's not gracious, but I mean that just as part of who we are. That is the reality of who we are, and that is the reality of knowing our strength, but not flaunting it in a way that becomes ungracious before others. Well, no one. I hear. I hear you. I hear you making the point that you know resurrection always or only comes by way of death, and that persecution 
is something about which we as Christians should never be surprised. I suppose there are two elements. In today's day and age, 21st century, and we have uh, international charters and laws and human rights agendas and religious freedom movements, I think we are a little bit surprised. Mm. But as followers of Christ, knowing this is our cross, we're not. Because we know that the message of Christ is offensive to some, and it shouldn't be. And I'm very sorry that it offends I don't intentionally try to offend by living my faith faithfully, but it is offensive to some. And that brings about all kinds of reactions then. So as we wrap up our conversation, I'm just curious if you could give us a couple ways that you would um, ask our listeners to pray for the Coptic Church today. So first of all, pray for your brothers and sisters. The Coptic Orthodox Church is not just a foreign, exotic part of a faraway country. Uh, your sisters and brothers in the Coptic Orthodox Church are also members of the body of Christ as, as your listeners are. And I think that's the way we shouldn't pray for each other as people who are distant or remote. We pray for each other as sisters and brothers. Secondly, we pray for people who suffer daily struggles of illness and loneliness and mental health and poverty and disempowerment and marginalization, alienation. We also pray for people who are intentionally marginalized and alienated because of their faith, who are paying that price. And then for those who pay the ultimate price and lose their lives, and then for their families who suffer that void, but also live so faithfully afterwards. And finally, I would ask you to pray for our church as any church, that we can stay faithful and resilient and relevant in serving our flock and then serving the whole world. Well, thank you very much, Archbishop, for those concrete ways that you have offered our listeners about how to support your church right now. I do want to remind our listeners, if people have feedback or questions for us, they can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on CT Podcasts. And I think it's also important to mention, too, that we are going to be helping to produce a film on the 21 Martyrs that will be coming out later this year and might be something that will allow you to kind of sit with their stories a little bit more. There is not a release date yet that I am aware of, but you can check our site and we will have information about that as we know more. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone has a chance now to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Daniel, I nominate you to go first. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Morgan. Um, it's been a lovely weekend. I am new to this position as editor-in-chief, and part of that position is involving a move from my current home to uh, Chicagoland. So I am here in the Christianity Today studios with my daughter, 
as we are exploring where we might live. And it's it's been fun to eat in different restaurants and visit schools and neighborhoods and and get a taste for what it's going to be like to relocate. All right. Where can people find you outside of this podcast? Are you on Twitter? Did you write a book? I don't know what you might want to plug. Not well, a website. Yeah, well, I I do go have, to Christianity.com. Yeah, these days you can probably just go to Christianitytoday.com. I've also got a website, uh, DanielHarrell.com. I'm on Twitter at D-A-N-L Harrell. I do want to flag that you wrote a piece um, for MLK Day, which is about a month ago, but it actually talked about some of these very themes that we brought up today Mm -hmm. as far as forgiveness and learning how to handle both our anger, right, but also demonstrate love at the same time. Right, right. That forgiveness does not mean setting our, our passion for justice aside. Yes, so if people want to read that, that is also on our website. And then we just published our March issue, and our March issue also has an editorial from Daniel. So anyway, his work is all over our website. Archbishop, do you have something to share with us? Yes. Um, it's not just one thing, but it's a variety of things over the past week. Please. Uh, both internally in our diocese and the church, but also externally ecumenically. And that is, I've seen so many instances of people rallying together over common causes that has been so encouraging uh people who you would not expect to work together to not even potentially want to cooperate who come together wholeheartedly with great humility and and great passion we have um a a project in in our diocese uh that we flagged up only a week ago, and people have rallied unbelievably in prayer and support and and, and with, with vision, and it's brought young and old together, and nothing gives me joy more than to see people coming together and rejoicing in one another and supporting each other. And so I think that uh, whether it's within a, a, a nuclear family or a church community or a church or the body of Christ. It's wonderful to see that happening. Where can people find you outside of this podcast? Uh, Probably at an airport somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, honest. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm quite active on Twitter. Uh, It's just Bishop Angelos. That's A-N-G-A-E-L-O-S. One word. Um, I use Twitter for daily reflections, and I have for 10 years now. And also, uh, we have YouTube channels to do with the church. We ha- we're on SoundCloud. We're on a variety of platforms. All right. My precious moment is that I think I like running again, which I think people, if, you, if you've really listened to the show for a long time, you do know that a couple years ago, I ran a marathon, and then I basically stopped running very consistently but that has changed i would say in about the past six months or i've been running at least once a week which i know once a week is not a lot but it does take some intentionality with me trying to figure out when to run so i think it is actually a bigger deal than that and normally i just kind of have this loop that goes around a park near my house and i run four miles or so 
But I'm excited because I think today I'm going to run six miles, which is great. And people may think it's crazy to run when it's cold, but it's also really crazy, too, how fast your body warms up when you are running and how much, how little time you actually spend being cold and more time you spend sweating. So I'm really thankful that that has been just nice to get back into that and to push myself physically again. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is very special because it is our 200th episode today. So thank you, everyone, who's been listening Woo-hoo. to the show for a very long time. This podcast is available wherever you want to get your podcasts, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Stitcher, wherever is convenient for you. Go to Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review the show. Again, we're so appreciative of all of you guys for doing that. This podcast is produced by myself. This week, it is produced by Cray Alred. It's a blast from the past to say that. And the transcript is done by Umi Ashola. We will see you all next week. <laughs>